Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is Sean Caternese, one of your three hosts today, level three judge from Berkeley, California. I'm joined today by two intrepid judges from far-flung reaches of North America. They include... Ricky Hayashi, level three from Blacksburg, Virginia. And Chris Lansdell, level one judge, Mount Pearl, Newfoundland. And Chris... You're a new addition here for, I guess, a guest hosting gig. Um, we're glad to have you here. Jose wasn't able to join us this time, but hopefully we'll have him back next time. Um, you're new to our listening audience, though only on this show is my guess. <laughs> They've probably heard you from other places. Um, tell us more about who you are, where you're from, you know, what it's like up there in the cold, frozen, white wastelands of North America's far reaches. Kind of like America's hat, basically. Um, I've been playing Magic since Mirage. I've taken a few breaks on and off, but uh, I'm old enough to remember when Power Sync was an interrupt and you could sacrifice lands to your Armageddon and not have to worry about it getting counted. I've always been interested in the rules, so I've always tried to be a, a judge, but never really got to the point of, of getting certified until Canadian Nationals about a month ago. So I'm a really, really new judge. In my area, we have one WPN store, so I have one place I can actively judge, and the TO there is not terribly keen on having me judge regular REL events. He doesn't think it's necessary, so I'll only be judging the odd GPT locally, which means I have to do a lot of traveling to GPs. And tell me more about this store. I mean, they don't want they don't want anybody actually judging the regular REL events. They just have like a store employee to do that, or how how does that work? Because it seems so, like It'd be to their benefit to have somebody with, you know, some proven experience or some proven, you know, rules yeah. knowledge and policy knowledge. Uh, it'd, it'd be helpful to have that sort of person running their events. Absolutely. And you're preaching to the choir on that one. But um, basically, they've had no certified judge in the store for so long. There are a lot of players in there who, quite frankly, could pass a judge test tomorrow if they were given one. Um, so they, they have got along for so long without a judge. I think he just doesn't see a need for it. He himself, the store owner, is not great on his rules knowledge. Uh, there have been a couple of times where he's been wrong on calls at FNMs. But the players themselves generally police the events just fine. And there aren't really any accusations of cheating or anything. We're a very tight-knit community. We're all, we all get along really well. Well, you're Canadian, so you have to be very friendly people anyway, right? Yes. <laughs> exactly. So there's that. That's stereotyping, Sean. Is it wrong? Well, I don't, I don't think I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> in my experience, Canadians are pretty nice people. I mean, I got to hang out with Kyle Rick. Um, is that how you supposed to say his name? Kyle Rick, Reich? Yes, it is Rick, yeah. Okay. Kyle and I hung out a little bit at the Pro Tour. Talk a little bit, um, you know, formally say, yes, uh, you know, California won the challenge with Canada. Um, although Max Nowlin, um did win the – Homeland's draft among judges there, so that's proving the Canadians. What? Homeland's draft on Thursday night. Was that a penalty or something for Canada losing? Did they have to play a Homeland's draft? <laughs> well, you did have many Canadians participating, but I don't think it was a penalty. Max actually like had a little trophy made out of the wrappers from the boosters, um, and he like held it up, just proving that Canadians can win something. <laughs> <laughs> new, new to the IPG <laughs> penalty for looking at extra cards. Play a homeland's draft, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, it's interesting to hear that you've got that community there. It sounds like you've got a lot of strong players um, who really know the rules, which is great. Um, so tell me more about your experience traveling around. It sounds like you, if you want to see competitive play, Chris, you sort of have to go out and find it and, and, and hunt it down. Yes, exactly. Um, I went to Canadian Nationals this year specifically to get certified, which was probably a, a good idea as it turned out. I tried to grind into Nationals, and as a judge, I'm probably not the best of players. So that was in Toronto. Just to give people an idea of geography, for those not familiar with the east coast of Canada, Newfoundland is off the east coast of Canada. It's about a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour flight to Toronto, a three-hour flight to Montreal, and probably about the same to New York City. So I, I'm a good distance away from anywhere that competitive magic is likely to be played on a regular basis. And three-hour flights are not cheap. Because we are on an island, I also don't have the option of road-tripping it anywhere. So it's it's flights everywhere, I'm afraid. Wow. So that's like... That's, like- that's my dream, dream place to live. Flights everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. You could keep your George Clooney status. That is the core. That's like the nose of, you know, if you imagine Canada, Eastern Canada is some kind of dinosaur. It's like right in the nose. Yeah, basically, I'm about half an hour's drive from the easternmost point of North America. So does that mean that if you wanted to go to a European GP, it might be an easier flight than if you were to, say, go to something in the southwest U.S. or southeast U.S.? Unfortunately not, because... The only flight, international flights that leave the local airport go to the U.S. or to Mexico. For me to go to Europe, I have to fly to Toronto, so I have to go three hours backwards to come four hours forwards. Oh, See, it, it is my dream place. <laughs> I, I love flying. I'm lucky enough to have a job that enables me to travel a fair amount. Flying backwards. So I actually have enough points to do two U.S. GPs next year. Oh, wow. So that that is definitely Ricky's dream home out there. I mean, cold, but Ricky's dream home nonetheless, because, I mean, how often is he actually going to be there? <laughs> exactly. Well, him and John Oldefer, okay. who apparently lives in the GP kit. Right. <laughs> well, tell me more about the GP that you went to here. It's, it sounds like this was your first GP. Um, what teams were you on in each of the days? Uh, how did you work it, work that out? How did you enjoy the time there? Um, you know, what did you do after hours? Anything like that? I was definitely on the best team ever on Sunday. I mean, Saturday. Sorry, Ricky. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was quite possibly the greatest magic experience I've ever had. I mean, it's the biggest event I've ever been to. I thought Canadian Nationals was amazing, and there were only 200-odd people in the hall for that. So having 1,200-odd, uh, 1052 of whom were registered for the main event was pretty special. I was there Friday for grinders. I basically had to change my flight because we were getting a hurricane the day I was supposed to fly out. The plan was to go out with some friends after the FNM, but uh, I was it was strongly suggested to me by my team lead for Saturday, uh, who may or may not be on this call right now, that I should probably sleep because uh, he had every intention of working me to the bone the next day. Mm-hmm. So sleep I did. Right, right, right. That's a very common thing for people at their first large event to, uh, you know, partake of the either adult beverages or, you know, all night commander EDH, um, all sorts of things that would keep you from sleeping and keep you from being a, a decent contributing member of your team in the next day. And, you know, that's a very common mistake that gets made, even though 
every article out there that says, hey, welcome to your first GP or welcome to your first big event says, you know, rule number one, get sleep. Um, sometimes the, the temptation is just too hard to resist, but it's, it sounds like you did. Well, I pretty much had to that night because I my eyes were literally heavy. I mean, I, I don't normally sleep a lot anyway, but I could barely keep my eyes open. So sleep was required. Mm-hmm. I think I got about seven hours, six or seven hours. Was back at the venue for eight eight thirty, and Ricky put me straight to work as I knew he would because I had told him that he could not wear me out. Mm-hmm. I think I managed to live up to that. So it sounds like you had a great time, Chris. Um, yeah, at, at the at the GP. Uh, yep. It sounds like both days. Well, the second day, uh, well, the first day, I, I was shadowing Ricky because we had six people on the team, three new judges and three fairly experienced ones. So we just did the natural pairings, or rather, Ricky did, and uh, he claimed me for his very own. Taught me a lot. I learned more in the fourteen hours we were working the GP than I think I've learned in the fourteen years I was playing Magic beforehand. So it was great. Oh, my. And uh, then Sunday, I got uh, banished to the wilds of Eight Man's. Oh, that's a fun event to be doing. That's really like that's probably one of my favorite things to do at a large event is the eight mans. I can't even detect the sarcasm in your voice. No, no, I sincerely mean it. I sincerely mean it. It, yeah. it is really my favorite thing to do because you have you know individuals that go that they'll only be there for eight mans all day long. And so yep. you get to actually know the same player base um, as they're going through it. You know, the, the, it's the same person who will draft five, six times in a day, or they might be playing commander. And if they're playing commander and they're serious about it, they'll be doing that for again five or six games in the course of a day. And so you, you get to refine sort of your your spiel at the beginning of your your sort of setting out the packs and telling people, okay, this is how we draft. You've all drafted before, blah, blah, blah. We go through the whole process, but you actually get to refine sort of your pitch. You get to throw in little jokes here and there. It really turns into sort of a good, uh, fun event because also these, yeah. these events, you know, people come to the side events, especially because, you know, they want to have a good time with a lot of players and they want to experience the variety that's out there. Um, it's a real different sort of player than, you know, the grinder that's going to go, you know, to six grinders the day before the GP or the day before um, the, you know, for the LCQs you know, right before the the event. Those players, if they don't make it, you know, and then they go back out and they say, okay, damn it, I'm going to win an iPad or damn it, I'm going to win an Xbox or I'm going to do these these large, you know, half day long events. Um, and they look at the grinders and they, or they look at the, the people that are sort of doing the eight mans and they say, you know, that's for, that's for people who really don't care what they get out of the event. Well, they just have different goals, but the people that go to those eight mans really have a blast and they're really a lot of fun, uh, to work with and work for because it's a real relaxed attitude. Oh yeah. I absolutely loved it. It's a lot of fun. It's just love it. What I really enjoyed about it was that it gave me a chance to show that I could handle six or seven tournaments running simultaneously in three different formats. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gave me a chance to show that I could manage large groups of different things happening at once. I had a few very positive feedback experiences from it as well, so obviously I managed to get it done. I had, I think, ten drafts, three standards, and two legacies throughout nice, the course nice. of the day. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it was regular REL, so I didn't have to worry too much about you know, IPG or issuing game losses. And I got to sit down and push a few, lean on a few people in untimed events because obviously it's all sim- single elimination. So it was, it was a nice relaxing change from, you know, having to watch pro players for uh, slow players a certain person asked me to do on the Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, it was it was it was good. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing those uh, those eight mans put it up on the judge center, so I can see the 15 events that I judged in one day. That's going to look pretty good. Well, you know that's that's another fun thing about this is that you get calls. You actually get interesting judge calls. You know, oftentimes in the main event, especially in day two, or especially you know for the pro tour or any day of it, you know the players got there because they know what they're doing. Um, yeah, and generally speaking, you're not going to get. Um, too many calls. I think, I think on the floor of the Pro Tour, I got the same call like four or five times, but it was always something that no player without some rules background is going to get off the top of his head. Uh, something like Blood Moon and Dryad Arbor interacting. Sure. Um, but, you know, that question four or five times is very different than, you know, 50, 60, 70 players that you see in the course of a day of eight mans. Um, and that's probably a low number. You probably see a lot more than that. <laughs> getting them started. Um, and that's, that's a very different experience because these are the players that, you know, they may not know the rules very well. They may be just coming for the sites and getting some cards signed by artists or something like that. And they say, Oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll play in a draft. Sure. And they definitely have questions. They definitely need to be sort of helped along when the rules come into the game that they're, you know, they've only played around the kitchen table or they're only playing, you know, at F and M they finally get to this, this big scene and, they definitely need help, and that's what we're there for. Well, one thing I would say is that I think the format of this Grand Prix was a great one for someone just cutting his teeth. Because core set mm. sealed, the rules interactions, for the most part, are fairly straightforward. I mean, Ricky constantly point. remarked to me, oh, you know, combat, it's still tricky. There were still people asking questions that you would expect high-level players to know. I mean, you get the fireball questions and the gin of wishes questions, and there were a couple that I had to think twice about. But the majority of the questions were things like, uh, I can't even think of an easy one now, but something like, if I active there aggression... There was one about the... Well, the, the, you know, saying combat is tricky, there was one about pretty much like who gets to choose the blocking order. Oh, yeah, there was that one. The, yeah, there was one where the blocking player thought that he, he got to choose the order that the blockers got dealt damage in. Oh, that'd be so nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. There was also one about um, if I frost breath my opponent's creature and then next turn I active aggression one of them. Not active aggression, active treason. Does it untap? I'm like, well, it untaps for you. And then when you give it back, if it's tapped, it stays tapped. Yes, that was easy enough. That was probably the most unusual one I got all day. Yeah, I, I actually do remember getting a um, – in the draft portion of the PT, I did get a question from one of our – actually, somebody from the Bay Area who I've seen playing at high levels. Um, I think he, he top-aided nationals this last year or the year before. Um, he, he had a misunderstanding um, about how Turn to Frog interacted with Titanic Growth, um, where he thought his creature was dying after his opponent Turn to Frog did after he had Titanic Growthed it. And, uh, you know, had to give him the good news that, no, no, your creature lives and your opponent's creature still dies. And, yeah, that's how it works. Um, and, and that was a surprise to him. So you, you still definitely get, even at the Pro Tour, you know, in the draft portions later on, you still get those sorts of questions, certainly. Yeah. I did get appealed twice, and both times it was upheld, so that felt good. Oh, appealed twice. That's actually a. That's kind of a big number for even. I realize it's your first event of this scale, but I don't think I've. I can remember the last time I was appealed twice in one event. Do you care to talk about those a little bit and sort of what you think led to the appeal? 
Yeah, well, the first one was, was a fairly interesting situation. It's one that's been discussed on, on the judge list recently, and edit that out if I'm not allowed to talk about the judge list. No, 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 but, of course. <laughs> um, it's one that's been well, talked it's about. Your, it's your call, so. <laughs> but um, it was a, a player with special needs who was a mute and had to communicate with players and judges via his iPhone. It was round one or round two. We got called over because he had drawn his seven cards said he was going to keep, he won the die roll, so he was on the play, and then he drew a card on his first turn. I said, okay, well, that falls under improper drawing at the start of the game, because we are still in the start of game procedures, and uh, so that would be a warning. And the other player was fine with that, and the guy who drew the extra card, who was the, the mute, typed on his phone, it's no longer the beginning of the game. So I said, well, yes, it is, because no cards have been played. We haven't officially started yet. So it is still going to be a warning. And he appealed me. Thinking, no, give me the game loss. No, really, give me the game <laughs> loss. Well, wow. exactly. So we went and got uh, uh, Jeff Morrow, who was the head judge. And that's exactly what Jeff said. He said, well, do you want me to issue you a game loss? Because that's the alternative here. If it's not the start of the game, that's what you're going to get. So obviously he put like it, it was a fairly straightforward decision. I just don't know. I think it was more to do with the communications issue. That's a, That's an interesting consideration. So what about your other appeal? The other one was uh, it was on the PTQ because the, the sides I was running were next to the PTQ and I was helping out when needed on the PTQ on the day two. And uh, the player had cast Gobbling Bang Chuckers, which is a 2RR for 3R. <laughs> he didn't, nobody noticed the mistake until two turn cycles later. This is, of course, competitive because it's PTQ. So I said, okay, well... That's a GRV, cut, fairly cut and dry. There's a warning for that. There's also a warning to the other player for failure to maintain the game state. Mm-hmm. The, we are not rewinding two draw phases, so the bank chuckers are staying in play and carry on as you were. And the, a player who didn't control the bank chuckers appealed because obviously he didn't want the creature in play. Okay, so those are your two appeals. Um, how did you feel when, when you heard the player sort of explain was it just i want to appeal right away or was it something where you sort of got the sense that with the player arguing you should probably just treat it like an appeal no it was they definitely said they wanted to appeal in these two cases because i knew i had made the right call i wasn't worried about it at all Uh, especially the first one where i had ricky standing over my shoulder ricky would not have let me make the wrong call Mm-hmm. So I knew that one was right, and the second one was cut and dry in my mind. I had already done several GRVs for the weekend at that point, so I knew what I was doing was right, and I knew that there was no head judge in the world was going to rewind through two draw phases. So right. uh, I, I was fairly confident with that one as well. But I can see how an appeal would be harrowing to a new judge if they weren't sure. Oh, go ahead, uh, on the first call, I was pulling up the IPG on my smartphone, just to double check to make sure that we could still apply the improper draw to start a game to the situation. Cause, right. you know, I was pretty sure, but it's always good to double check. And I wanted to have that ready to show you know, either Chris or the player, if need be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And at a tournament like a GP, if you get appealed, that's an opportunity for you to interact with the head judge. Right. Something you, you may not get otherwise because there are so many judges and so little time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, 
that sounds like a great excuse to make bad rulings. So thank you, Ricky, for giving <laughs> no. our listeners a good incentive to just totally screw up the next GP horribly. Yeah, um, that'll be the day. Uh, <laughs> I'll be head judging something and I'll, like, how, why are you getting appealed so much? Like, oh, I just want to talk to you, Ricky. Oh, <laughs> no, <laughs> don't do that. Well. <laughs> Especially don't do that at the Nashville Open next month where I'm head judge. Right. Okay. Well, great. So I think that that about covers Montreal. Anything else you want to wrap up on that, um, Chris? Uh, the only other one that happened was uh, a really interesting call where I actually had to give out a game loss for something other than tardiness. Um, it was a, a case of a pro player in round four, so it was first ra- ra- round with all the pros in it, against a local guy. And when they were shuffling up, the pro player had the deck and said, this feels thick. How many cards are you running? The local guy said, well, 40. And the pro goes, no, it feels like more than that. So he pile shuffles it. And I'm st- at this point, I thought, okay, I'm not going anywhere. This is resulting in a call. So I stood up watching him. And it comes out to 41 cards. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he puts his hand up, calls judge, says, this is 41 cards. He says he's only running 40. So I take the deck and I look through it. And he's playing blue-white. And there in the middle of the deck is Garrick Primal Hunter. So my first, <laughs> my, my first thought is, okay, make sure there are no green mana sources in this deck because cheaty face, right. uh, as Jeff Morrow calls it. And there were none. So I thought, okay, this is clearly an error. He's, he's obviously made a mistake here because he had no way of casting the spell. He didn't even have Gin of Wishes to bring it into play that way. So I said, okay what colors are you playing? And he said, well, I was just playing a side game with my buddy, and I think I O-ringed his Garrick, and it might still be in my deck. So, Uh. obviously, that was exactly what had happened. So I said, okay, let's go get your deck list. We'll do a deck check, and we'll see what happens. So that was the only problem with the deck. So I issued the game last after consulting with with the head judge. Mm -hmm. And then he said, so what happens to my buddy? Right. Who, who, <laughs> That's the next question because his buddy's playing short one Garrick. Who was on the other half of the tournament because we had to split it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Fortunately for his buddy, this was the round, this was the only round all day where the two sides were out of sync and they had not yet started. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I basically I gave the card to another judge so I could finish doing the deck check and issue the game loss. I said, "Go find his buddy. Here's the name, and you know, straighten his deck out and issue the game loss if necessary." Um, wow, that is really lucky. Fortunately, they hadn't started yet. But this poor guy is there playing against a high level pro who's in the top ten for the player of the year race. So I mean, it's a pretty high tension situation anyway. He's just got a game loss, and all he can think about is his buddy, who's also 3-0, and playing another pro, more than likely, and getting a game loss as well, and doesn't even know why yet. Oh, wow. Well, that's, that's awesome that you were able to intervene in time. Do you know if that other player got a game? He said, you said he, he hadn't started yet, so they, yeah. he didn't get a game loss for that at he all. Hadn't, he hadn't started, so he, had, he didn't present an illegal deck, so he was fine. Okay. Wow. That's uh, well. That's also a really good customer service story because you know we're here to help. We're not just here to catch you in wrong wrong things. Exactly. So it sounds like uh, Montreal went really well. It sounds like you had a great time, Chris. Um, Ricky, this was a couple weeks after Pro Tour Philadelphia. So 
did you spend that time just sort of hanging around the Northeast or did you, uh, did you go back home after Philadelphia or how did that, how did you end up in Montreal? Well, it's more like, how did I end up in Philadelphia? That was completely off the cuff, but Friday, Friday night on Facebook, I see all of the, you know, so-and-so has passed their L3 written exam. Yes, and all so seven. All seven had passed I, as of that. Yeah, I, I texted you and I said, you know, have have you taken it yet or whatever? And you're like, I passed. Everyone else has passed. And I looked at Tasha and I said, I have to go to Philadelphia tomorrow. <laughs> How am I going to do that? And initially we had talked about driving up together. Um, but unfortunately, our ferret was sick that week. So someone needed to stay home with her. So I I left home about 4 o'clock in the morning on Saturday to drive to Roanoke, get on a plane, and show up at the Pro Tour to root you guys on. And by you guys, you know, mostly I, I mean Sean. Yeah, and I, I greatly appreciated having you there, actually. That was... um. It was awesome to see because the whole weekend I was expecting like, okay, well, it's kind of sad that Ricky's not here, but I know I'm going to do well. I just wish that one of my primary mentors was was here to share this moment because I'm I'm sure this is going to be freaking awesome. Um, and and then there you were, and that was fantastic. Yeah, Philly was was a great great event. The tournament itself went went very well. You know, modern sort of making its debut on a big stage was fantastic as 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 a format. Um, really, actually, uh, pretty diverse, um, and and a lot of fun to judge because a lot of new interactions were out there, and a lot of players hadn't gone through the whole gauntlet of things that were out there with all the diversity. Um, so they weren't familiar with some of the decks; they didn't really know what was going on some of the time, and it was really you know a good time to be a judge because you get to plow through this new territory and and get new calls that you didn't think you'd get because the cards aren't good enough to be played in Legacy, but they're also you know, not in standard or extended anymore. Nobody plays extended, so it doesn't matter. So these cards just ha- haven't really interacted much in a competitive environment. So it's really interesting to see the things that come out of that from a judging perspective. Um, I got to be on sort of public events and two-on-ones um, for most of the day on on Sunday um, after passing my L3 panel on Saturday. Um, the panel was great. Um, was it, was it as nerve wracking as I've always made it out to be? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, (laughs) good. The the number of times in which I thought I had failed, uh, was a a non-zero number. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And like, Oh man, did I really say that? Right. Um, yeah, I think a big thing there too was that, um, I think I got a little bit of bad advice actually. Um, from Jeff Morrow going into this, and I think did he I can, tell you I, to be yourself? No, no, no. Be yourself is fine. I mean, that's that's actually good good advice. Um, I think the advice that I got from Jeff at one point, because um, he came up here and, and we we got to. It's one of those great things about being a, a judge in the Bay Area is that you have a level four judge and a level five judge that are within shouting distance, more or less. I mean, we've got Toby Elliott and Jeff Morrow that are real close by. And so Jeff really mentored me through uh, a lot of the the philosophical pieces of sort of saying, well, are you really ready for L3? You know, what do you think about these scenarios? And and really talking about things um, that really made me think hard. So 
in one of the, our, our sort of meet for lunch and then walk around Berkeley sorts of afternoons, he, uh, you know, he, he mentioned this, that, you know, one of the things they're really looking for is that you can take a position and defend it. And well, that's not exactly what they're looking for. And I think I sort of took that take a position oh. and defend it <clears throat> logic a bit too far in, in my interview. And I think you have right to take it, a reasonable position. Well, that, and you also have to be, you know, open to input. I mean, the, the, you know, the L3 written test is, you know, do you know the rules? Are you right when you answer a question? That's, mm-hmm. that's the question of being right. The interview is about being ready. And, and that means that you're, you know, able to interact with peers um, and treat other level three judges, level four judges as peers, respect their opinion and, you know, be able to make reasoned statements, ethical arguments and arguments back and forth, but make them in sort of, in a, in a spirit of um, collaboration as opposed to, you know, a, a sort of speech and debate, I'm right, you're wrong sort of position. Um, and be able right, to right. Have, have, have mutual respect in that interaction. And I think I, I took Jeff's statement of take a position and, and you know, defend it as, you know, be rigid <laughs> in how I describe things and how I right. interact with things. And that really was a disservice in the interview itself. I think I, I could have done a lot better in the interview had I really thought more about that. That said, I mean, you know, I passed the interview and, and Kevin and Chris who were on my panel and Jared, the observer and Lems, who was also in there for a bit of it. Um, you know, all, y'all had great feedback for me. Um, the review I've gotten since then has been fantastic in terms of helping me understand where I should improve. Um, and, and really, you know, that's the, another part of it is that you don't need to be a perfect judge to succeed in the interview. In fact, if you think you're perfect going into the interview, you're probably going to fail. Because you're human and you have flaws and recognizing and understanding those flaws is part of the process of being a good, strong judge that can really contribute to the program because part of contributing to the program is understanding where people have differences and where people have strengths and weaknesses and being able to work with those. And you need to understand your own strengths and weaknesses also. So, um, yeah, it was, I mean, the interview itself was great. Um, even though I did think I had failed at least once. Um, I think that the whole process really, um, having gone through it now, um, I hope many more L3s go through that process in the next year here. Um, and then the night of passing was also pretty, pretty awesome. I got to meet up with a lot of great judges who I'd never met before. Um, you know, I got to hang out with, uh, Ben McDowell, um, and Justin Turner, the pe- people who were, I'd never met before the, from Florida, um, CJ Schrader got to hang out with him some more. Just all these great judges from all over the country, especially the Southeast. Um, really, some great people. Um, also, got to I, I think I spent something like four hours just discussing the the policy of unsporting conduct with Allison Medwin. Um, and mm. we spent four hours just talking policy and walking around downtown Philadelphia. Really great discussions. So, and that goes with. Um, you know, with everybody that I met there, I think there's really great stuff to talk about. See, Chris, no one follows that advice. <laughs> Everyone stays well, up late. Well, that was, was after I'd passed the test, so I was okay. Like, I wasn't about to pull an Eric where, you know, don't sleep at all the day before and just rely on caffeine to get me through. Uh, that was not going to be the case. 
Uh, I was never happier than when Jeff told me on Saturday night that I didn't have to be at the venue until 11 o'clock Sunday morning. <laughs> EDH till three. Don't mind if I do. Exactly. That's that's the time to do that. Is when you've got the late shift. Whatever day you have the late shift, then you know stay up all night the night before. But you know late shift is like 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. and that's really the only time you'll have. And I guess I should also mention um, that a few days before, like sort of the weekend before the pro tour, Hurricane Irene went through sort of the northeast and. Um, really destroyed a lot of stuff up there. And uh, I wanted to apologize to our listeners for taking so long after the Pro Tour to get a show together. Um, but part of that was that you know, I'd planned on recording the week after the Pro Tour and sort of getting right back into things. And uh, my family up in Vermont had some uh, some pretty severe damage from the hurricane. Their whole community had a, had a lot of damage up there in central Vermont. So I spent that week, um, instead of recording a new episode for you all, um, was up there, uh, you know, in, up to my elbows, cleaning out mud um, and, and other cleaning up damage from the hurricane. So, so, so you were in Vermont, and mm-hmm. then there was a GP the next week in Montreal, which is like a half hour drive from Vermont. And you, <laughs> you didn't. No, you see that? No, no. Well, you know, there was a problem with that, and that is that I hadn't had a hot shower in a week um, because we didn't have running water in the house. Um, there was so. a shower in my hotel room <laughs> and in mine actually and you would have been around magic players you would have fit in perfectly oh right right <laughs> yes yes I suppose so I, the other part of that too was that I'd used up basically all of my vacation time um, in in spending this week cleaning up so I didn't have any extra time that I could you know take um, up in up in Montreal I actually had to be at work in the intervening week there uh, well, that's a more acceptable excuse. I suppose we can let that one fly. Yeah, but uh, I, I do appreciate I do appreciate the rising port because I, I I actually did have a fleeting thought of well, I suppose I could stay up here for two weeks, get a lot more cleanup done, and yeah, then I could go to Montreal. But that that didn't come together. Um, but that that was a fleeting thought. So we that's... we could have used an extra judge. There were se- there were several judges who were not able to make it, including my roommate. So you could have roomed with me. Oh well, there's another problem. I didn't have my passport. Oh. Uh, well, you know else? your voice. Your voice is your passport. <laughs> Verify. Verify me. me. Right. <laughs> I love that. Okay, I, I made that joke all week leading up to Montreal. So <sighs> now I've made it on the air, so everyone's heard. Right, unless I cut that part out. <laughs> All right, well, we've talked about Pro Tour Philly. We've talked about um, Montreal. I guess we can talk about – we have two or three other things to talk about before we get to listener questions. Um, first off, something that's changed recently is that Pro Tours are going to be for level three judges only going forward. Um, just in time, Sean. I know. I know. I, I, I made it just in time to get into like – Hopefully, either Honolulu or, or some of the other pro tours for next year. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? I mean, I think it was inevitable once they closed pro tours and took away all the side events. The one additional thing I would say is, to my knowledge, and I think this is still right. I don't think anyone leveled up this weekend. We only have one L three in Canada, so that means one Canadian judge max will be going to a pro tour in a year. Uh, in a year, so 
That's kind of upsetting. You have two level threes. Who they were both up? there. <laughs> yeah, he's. But yeah, we have Gavin as well, of course. Right, and G- Gavin was actually my evaluator, um, my my pre-event evaluator. We had lots of discussions about philosophy and stuff uh, via email. That was yeah, a, a good uh, good long discussion there. And yeah, Gavin Gavin sounds like a sounds like an awesome guy. I like. Gavin. I do see what you're saying with, uh, or, or only a, a small number of L3s in the country. Um, your presence at Pro Tours may be diminished, and so that that hope of sharing best practices across regions may be more made more difficult if you don't have many people from those disparate regions coming to the Pro Tour. Yeah, and I mean, I'm in a disparate region of a disparate region as it is. <laughs> I am literally the only active judge in this entire province and the only one for almost a thousand miles. So well, Chris pointed out that one of the reasons they are cutting the staff down this far is because there's no public events. And again, that was one of the things that I love the most about the Pro Tour is the absolute chaos of public events. Like one of one of the greatest roles in the history of judging is public events uh, shift lead. You know, when you have to manage, I don't know, 20 to 40 judges who are on a half dozen events and figure out, you know, who's had a break, what event is starting next hour, you know, how many judges are they going to need, checking in, figuring out what tables you can use for that, moving people off. Like that, that's one of my favorite things to do. So, yeah. not having that anymore also is, is again, you know, that's why I'm kind of waffling on whether I want to go to these new pro tours. Well, I can see that. And actually, you know, you mentioned the, the PE, the public events manager. That is really, um, that was a role that Jason Reedy at the, at Pro Tour Philadelphia, my God, he, the, the man was a machine. He was just, he was amazing. Currently, it's uh, it's two days from the deadline to apply for Honolulu, and I haven't applied yet because I, I really don't know if I want to go. One of my favorite things about judging is helping people, you know, advance or get to where they want to be, whether it means advancing or not. You know, a, a pro tour with all L three pluses really isn't the kind of place for that. Hmm. Everyone is already you know at, at the pinnacle as it were l3 is kind of the pinnacle of judging in general so well i think that's true um but i also think i know that i'm l3 and i have a ton to learn from people at a pro tour still but that face-to-face discussion with an l3 judge that i've never met before or or have only had passing time uh, like like talis bittencourt from brazil um, we actually sat down over breakfast, you know, uh, the day after the pro tour, and that discussion with him um, really was just amazing. Just amazing to talk to him about the Brazilian community and and what it means to be an L three there and what it means to be a leader in his community and and what his community is doing. Um, and the same thing went for for Stephen Briggs, who also certified for L three in Philadelphia. Um, I, I think we actually have an interview here um, that I can play. 
So I'm here with Stephen Briggs. Stephen, you are one of many new L3s to come out of Pro Tour Philadelphia. Um, what makes this special for you, and what are you going to do now? <laughs> what makes it special for me is the... Uh, there's there's a lot of story behind how magic has, and, and judging magic has um, really, I don't know, from a personal standpoint, given me a lot of solace. Um, it, it has helped professionally it has helped me at, at just as a human being and i think about all the different experiences and things that i've gotten to see over the last couple of years and becoming a level three now gives me the tools i feel like i need to help where i live in michigan and help more judges and more players have the same types of experiences that i've gotten to see over the last couple of years uh it, it's such an amazing community and if you if you've never gone to some of these events or meet some you know the different people i've gotten a chance to meet over the last couple of years and that and i think that's just it, it it's the people that i've gotten to see and meet and help uh Becoming a level three is going to allow me to reach out to more of those people and hopefully help them grow in this program, whether as a player or as a judge. Okay, so you said that uh, magic has given you a lot of solace in your life. It's given you, I think, a lot of purpose. That's what a lot of the higher level judges um, get out of it. Is it gives them part, it imparts part of their identity. It's part of who they who they think they are and who, and what they want to do. Um, in terms of serving their community and that sort of thing. Tell me about what magic means as part of that for you. Um, tell me more about what's sort of driven you. Where my efforts have been uh, pushed are a few different directions. Um, Michigan as a whole does not has not had a lot of judge presence in the last several years. Um, David Rappaport's done a fantastic job as an L2 in the Detroit area of promoting magic and, and growing as much as he's been able to in that region. And so my, I guess my take on it is now to take that foundation he's built and, and grow with it. Um, the, the state of Michigan is very vibrant with respect to magic. And yet there are very few judges that really are, are even at a local level exist, let alone outside of that area. So there's a large potential for us to have more of those leaders that do exist. And I've seen them exist now start to come into the fold and become a, a bigger part. Part of the overall program. The other mass, I guess, the other goal I want to see is for um, communities outside of, obviously, where I live in Michigan to become even stronger. So building tools that will help us get into, help get, have more judges and more stores, which will make the store environment better for players. And the other aspect, which I I've, I've guess I've been uh, championing for a while, are the charity events and being able to, for us to outreach and give back to the local areas that we were a part of. I, I think that that's a really important part about mainstreaming magic into our culture is we have a lot of really good people that play this game and it, the, the, the charity efforts provide an outreach for us to show, hey, look, you know, we're the people that volunteer at the Red Cross. We're the people that are out there trying to help other people. We love this game called Magic, and we have an avenue by playing that to benefit our communities and to show, you know, the, to be, you know, hopefully invite people to uh, our group, our community, because I think we're really terrific people. 
charity events are perhaps the the one thing that you are known singly best for <laughs> in the judging community. Uh, the Manipool and and everything you've done concerning them, not just with regard to running the events and organizing them themselves, but also um, your series of YouTube videos, sort of expressing and training others on how to go about doing that themselves. Tell me more about Manipool, how that came about for you, um, and what it is that, uh, I mean, we understand sort of the drive for this here, but tell me more about the event itself um, and its genesis and sort of uh, what makes that such an awesome event. The Manipool event came about uh, a couple of years back. Um, at, at that point in time, uh, I had just uh, certified as a level one judge, and I... Basically, you know, a couple of months prior to that, um, I had been in the unemployment line. I was looking for work. I was, you know, banging, almost like banging your head against the wall. I was a professional teacher months before, and uh, Michigan is hard up on the economy, like every, you know, many other parts of the country. But we get hit first, and so uh, it was it it was very discouraging to be a professional and have that happen to me very unexpectedly. So. As you know, things came around the corner. It was I, you know, I got my L one in uh, late May of '09. The very next week, I was offered a full time job, um, you know, 30 minutes away from where I was living. I, uh, you know, and so I came across some very good fortune. And you know, the bottom line was I remember you know very distinctly how much help I needed in my time of need. And so here I had an opportunity through a game that I love to I said we got to do something to give back. I mean it, it it's it seems so you know easy we get to play this game and enjoy it and have all these awesome friends. And there are people that were standing in that line they don't want to be there. They you know they you just see pride is completely crushed. Mine certainly was when I'm having to you know take assistance at some point. Um, there's no part of me that wanted any of that. And so. Um, you know, I, to, to have an opportunity to help other people uh, was very important. You know, now that I've had some good fortune to be able to hopefully help other families and help other people, whether they're related to magic or not, do the same. So I approached the uh, store owner there at the store I was uh, judging at um, at the time, Gamer Sanctuary, and you know, passed around the idea of having a charity a tournament, and and it took off. The uh, community embraced it in Flint, Michigan. Uh, the uh, uh, food pantry there, food, uh, the Food Bank of Eastern Michigan, just loved it. It timed really well with their National Hunger Awareness Month. And so Manipool was, was born. We started organizing in July for a September tournament. And uh, when we ended up with 50 players uh, at our event, uh, some that had driven from out of state, went, well, we get to do this again in a year, and we can make this even better. And that's that's kind of been its evolution year to year to year it is, uh, you know, continuing to help in hopefully a, a greater capacity with each year that we run it. So I had no idea that this was such a personal issue for you. We talked about earlier about uh, magic being part of the identity, but I think also the charity aspect seems like it's also part of your identity and that you've been there. Um, I, I also uh, was there at one point in the last couple of years, and so my wife as well. Um, so I definitely know where you're coming from there. We also went volunteering. You know, I went down to uh, 
my volunteering was going down to Planned Parenthood as a, as an escort in the clinic, uh, which is a little different than a lot of people would necessarily. Uh, nonetheless, I, I do understand that personal perspective on, on wanting to give back and wanting to have a positive impact in your community when you feel that um, that immediate uh, industrious urge stifled by the economy or other factors outside your control. Um, so we, this this has been a resounding success, though, it sounds like, um, in your local community. Um, tell me more about where you've seen this. Uh, I mean, where, where has this gone outside your community, uh, other people that have run events, and how has that gone, and, and how can that be made better, and what should people look for in the future for that? Um, as far as what has happened with Manipool, um, we, we have a number of uh, stores, and I, I can't quite list them off the top of my head, that actually have uh, partnered with um, this event and have taken the name and the logo and run it as their own event in their own store. Um, we, uh, the first year, even, we had a store in London pick up on this two weeks before we were going to run our event and said, can we run one, too? Of course, my answer is absolutely. <laughs> and so they actually ran their event the same day we did so it's manifested in that sense that other communities have taken a look at this approach the uh, other aspect is that other judges that have been running charity events in the store i'm not the first uh there are other events before mine um that have gone after that uh goal uh started to come out of the woodwork and and identify themselves as uh, you know hey we're running events too so now part of the work that i'm looking at doing it is yes the local event that I, I generated to begin with, but even more so communicating with the magic community, these events exist and how players can be involved in, in that, um, in making those events a success. Um, this last year we ran one, for example, uh, one player had the idea of rather than going out and, uh, and, paying for just his own entry actually procured sponsorships from people who had no no interest in magic or anything at all but family members and friends that just wanted to help the charity and so when most players came with a 10 or a 15 dollar donation he came in with almost 200 dollars worth of donation money from the program and it was just a matter of him you know going out and asking his you know family and friends you know for a dollar or a couple of dollars here to help the cause and uh, end up, like I said ended up with almost 200 hours worth of donations so I was uh, very impressive and unexpected it wasn't you know it's something we had structured at all but um, that's the type of thing that I think with more publicity and more uh, outreach that's what I hope to see from this it's not just about Manipool it's about helping communities and whatever need meets that community needs met uh, throughout the year so now I know Manipool, the, the actual event itself is not your traditional magic event. <laughs> um, you know, this. tell me more about how the, because we have a lot of players that also listen um, or judges that might be saying, well, you know, I could run my no normal seals like this or I could run my normal pre-release like this or my draft or whatever. Uh, what makes Manipool special in terms of how players interact and perceive the, the format and how, how everything goes? Basically, uh, the event isn't just, uh, well, 
what makes this event different than your FNM, basically, is what I, I guess what I'm asking. Well, to begin with, the Mana Pool event, it, while it, we play as a standard format so players know what cards to bring, essentially, it is a very casual format. We, we encourage players, uh, nay, beg players, play a very casual and fun deck. And we've had players come in with decks that are at literally one of every card in standard, for example. 1,400 card decks coming in with lands loaded, and maybe they get to play something this game and maybe not. Um, we format it so we're playing uh, five rounds, no matter how many players we have. We play five rounds of standard, um, your typical 50-minute round. You play as many games as possible. So there's no, there's no two wins for the match or anything. Uh, and so you're playing, you're playing games for a solid 50 minutes in, in the match. Uh, the, the kick is this. Uh, players are are, um, are asked to pay a, uh, um, a, a donation for, to get into the event, and we get food uh, um, uh, donated to us through uh, Buffalo Wild Wings, so we're able to feed our players here, which is really cool, and it's very nice of B-dubs to do that. The winner of the match is whoever wins the most games in that match. Um, if they go to time, uh, we don't play five extra rounds. Whoever has the most life wins that game right then and there. We're not interested in dragging these things out. Uh, the uh, but the here, here's the real the kicker. Uh, for every dollar beyond what a person um, brings in as a donation, they receive an event ticket. And two times during a game in a match, so any game they're playing, you can imagine how many games are played if we have no restriction on that. Um, a player may call for a judge to come over, they may spend an event ticket, and they pull a random spell out of a bag that we have prepared. <laughs> Hundreds of magic cards. Some of them are promo cards and judge foils that I've acquired throughout the year. I do save some of those for this event. Uh, some of them are really awful spells. Uh, some completely useless. Um, nothing like uh, spending a ticket and pulling pure lace out. We had a game a couple years back where turn one player pulls it and gets Nickel Bullis, a planeswalker, uh, out on the battlefield right from the start of the match. Uh, that that game didn't last very long, you can imagine. Um, but and all sorts of craziness happens, and that's that's the fun of it. it, it you know, the p- players are there to have a great time, and and we try to provide an environment that we can do just that. Um, now, just to clarify, the players get to keep these cards that they're casting. Is that how it works, or is, there, is it some other, other way? No, they get to keep the cards. The cards are either donated from myself or other players or from the store. The other half is that they go on the stack with split second. So they imme- there's no way to even counter these cards. They just have to let them resolve. Uh, so that's, that's the other fun part. It's, at least you know when you pay your event ticket for that spell, whatever you're pulling is going to happen, even if you have a board full of creatures and that Wrath of Foiled Texas Wrath of God comes up. You just wrath your own board. It happens, <laughs> and that's and that's the Manifold event, and and that's that's the fun, the the randomness, and like I said, you see some just off the wall crazy theme decks out of that because the players all realize there's no prize for first place. We don't we mm-hmm. don't structure it that way. We do a number of different random prizes. We'll do some different um, side events, public events, uh, booster drafts, EDH for some of some of the other prizes we get in but mostly the players are there to gather have a great time eat you know eat some good food and and enjoy themselves and at the same time support a great charity so that sounds like it takes a ton of work there's 
tons of hours involved in this, I'm sure. Tell me more about that aspect of it um, and how that maybe has changed over the years that you've done this. Initially, whenever you're trying to start any new idea or project like this, and a charity event is no exception to this, there's a ton of groundwork the first year or first couple of years. Um, You're establishing that it's a charity event. You're building your community's trust that you're going to do what you say you're going to do with money, with resources, that type of thing. And you're building a network of community leaders, business leaders that want to support your cause. Um, it, it's So the first year is where most of the groundwork gets done. Um, and so I think we put in 70 or 80 hours worth of, uh, of uh, work over the first event to really make that launch. Um, you know, in sub, you know, subsequent years here, it, it's, it's gotten easier. Um, you have uh, companies that, and leaders that, that are willing to sponsor again. Uh, players start talking to other players about the event. And, and so, and, and it becomes something that they traditionally look forward to. So you get an idea from that conversation with Steven. Um, um, well, Steven is, he's a very smart guy. Mm-hmm. And he, and he's a guy, he is a judge with a huge heart. I mean, one of the things he first became known for was the, you know, spearheading charity tournaments. Right. And that's, we, you heard a lot of that in what we talked about in the interview there. Definitely. And I think now, now that he's L three, that same kind of energy and that same kind of heart is going to come through in a lot of the work he does for the program as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm and, definitely and looking I'm, forward to that. I'm very interested in seeing what he does and what all of you do. Like this class of Philadelphia, seven new L threes. Really, like it's such a it's such a diverse group. You guys are. Ryan Stapleton uh, from Washington D.C. He does all of the all of the work with the uh, mobile devices, getting uh, all of our documents onto mobile devices. You know Ben McDowell and Turner down in Florida did the judge classes. Stephen Briggs we just talked about Dan Stevens. Yeah, new not only coordinator. was yeah promoted straight to regional coordinator as well. Because, Sean? Chris Richter made L4. That's right. right. Chris Richter um, actually was my team lead on the first day of the event, and I actually have a review I still need to write for him. Hopefully by the time you hear this, it'll be in the Judge Center. Um, but yeah, Chris Chris made level four, and he's the level four judge for the L3s now, where basically his job is to sort of help guide be a big part of the development of uh, these L3 judges that are coming into the program because there's going to be a lot of L3 judges coming into the program, I think, in the next year. I really hope that we get to grow that part of the program quite a bit. They have some big plans for that and big plans in general. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Well, okay. So we've talked a bit about the Pro Tour here. Um Let's move on to our next next area here. Um, there's well, is this where I get to do my movie review? <laughs> no, you, you get to do your movie review. Um, honestly, Ricky, you don't get to do a movie review in this episode. Chris, you gotta invite me on one of your podcasts so that I can talk <laughs> about movies. Sean won't let me. I'll see if I can find a slot for you. <laughs> well. I can talk about something much more interesting than any movie I've seen recently, um, and that is Investigations. 
How do you like that segue? That was pretty smooth, I gotta say. Uh, I mean, what if you watch a movie about investigations? Those <laughs> tend to be pretty boring movies. I mean, did you see the um, the what, what's the Nicole Kidman was a translator in the UN? I can't remember the name of that movie. Oh, that was terrible. Yeah, Clive Owen. I don't remember. That. Yeah, what, see, what was that called? I'm getting into the banter here. At least you got to look at Nicole Kidman. So it wasn't all bad. <laughs> so. Kevin DePray, um, level four judge out of France, um, an amazing gentleman. Um, I don't just say that because he was part of my L3 panel, but actually having chatted with him at length um, from time to time, he, he truly is um, one of the beating hearts of the program in Europe. Um, he leads the sort of investigations committee and the investigations committee basically takes care of once a DQ happens, what happens after that? And so it's actually been brought to his attention that that was sort of an unclear process, nebulous to both players and judges um, where, you know, if I DQ'd somebody at a grand prix trial, um, you know, I would tell them, okay, give me your statement. Okay. Give me your email address. And after that, it sort of put it into the judge center and, something would happen to it and maybe they'd get a warning letter. Maybe they'd get suspended, but I wouldn't really know. And I wouldn't really know sort of what influences that and how that changes with the information that I provide and the information in the investigation. So Kevin was kind enough to give us this sort of um, publicly accessible explanation of what the investigations committee does uh, because they want to be transparent. And also it's important that, players who are disqualified sort of know what the next steps are, know what, what happens next. So this was, I think, a really interesting message to kind of go out um, to judges. And, you know, also one of the things that they said, you know, explicitly you can talk about this publicly. So here we are. We're publicly accessible. We're, we're talking about it. So, Chris, oh, let me start is. this off by asking Good. you, have you ever decued somebody? No, I haven't had to. Thank okay. God. So if you say at your next FNM, uh, somebody came in and they, they were mana weaving their deck, uh, it's unfortunate, but I'm going to disqualify you. You go through that process with them, you know, they get upset or, you know, throw stuff or make it worse. But anyway, they get upset. They give you a statement nonetheless. They give you an email address nonetheless. You put all that in the judge center. So do you think you know what, what happens after that, having read Kevin's email? I do. Basically, what happens next is that the information is reviewed by the investigations committee, uh, which is made up of some luminaries from the judge world. Uh, I believe they're all L3 or higher. They are. They are. There are seven judges, um, all L3 or higher. Um, and they also – one thing that Kevin pointed out in his email is that they don't um, all only speak English. They actually speak a variety of the languages that are common among Magic players. I mean, that's important for understanding um, the actual statements that they provide and understanding the cultural and, and, and contextual elements of um, the investigations as they're presented. I think that's that's really important because, um, you know, something that I say in a Japanese tournament may be interpreted horribly wrong and may may actually result in a, in a DQ unnecessarily if I say it the wrong way. Um, I mean, that's, that's sort of a weird corner case and probably not very likely, but it's possible. So it's, Especially it's if you say it in Japanese. <laughs> I mean, right. if you say it in Japanese. 
because of course I know, don't know how to speak Japanese other than other than sumimasen, which uh, you know used <laughs> to interrupt players. Um, it's a good yeah. phrase to know. It is. It is. It's. It's. Excuse me. That's. That's important. Excuse me in any language is probably the first thing you should know, aside from the profanity. All I know is Wakarima said. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> that's also a good one. Okay, so we know what the investigations committee is comprised of. It's seven, as you as you called them, Chris, luminaries, um, seven judges from around the world, um, and then. You know, Kevin goes into sort of why players get suspended, and I guess perhaps the, the, the big questions that he's asking are: well, Why are why do players? Yeah, he says why do we suspend players? How do we make decisions? And then he also goes into some details about um, the timing of the decisions that the investigations committee makes, and then also some philosophical underpinnings of of how they're guided toward their decisions. Um, it's really an interesting message here. Let's just, uh, you know, I I hate to just read things on the air, but I think this one's actually pretty good to just read. How do you guys feel about that? What? Which Definitely. part? <clears throat> well, especially um, the part about how do we make our decisions and, and the part about what happened, like why a player would be suspended and why the DQ would just be left as the as the only penalty. Right. I think. Okay. Well, let's go into it then. Um, so actually, and we can also alternate here. Like, like you remember in grade school where you'd be like, read the next paragraph, Chris, because <laughs> you have the email up. I do. Okay. So I'll take the, why do we suspend players? And then you can take the, how do we make decisions? And then sure. I'll take the, when do we make decisions? How's that sound? Yep. Okay. You know, so, I have the email open now too. You don't have to ignore me. Well, I, I know you hate to read stuff like that. Okay. Well, why don't I do this? That's true. I would I'll just make stuff up. <laughs> All right. Why do we suspend players? Because they've done bad things. That, that's, that's actually somewhat true. Um, but it's more complex than that. So why do we suspend players? Well, we are well aware that suspending a player can be a very important moment in that player's life. However... We want Magic to remain a clean game where each and every player can play in a fair environment where rules exist and are not intentionally broken. Making mistakes often happens. It's even possible to intentionally break the rules without knowing one did, uh, such as an example of uh, offering to roll a die. I mean, that's you mean to roll the die. You actually intend to make that choice. However, it is against the rules and it is a decuable offense. So, even if this can lead to a disqualification, it may not be worth a suspension. On the contrary, a player who intentionally and knowingly breaks the rules is a detriment to the tournament scene. He makes the game experience worse for all those who play in the same tournament, and at that point, we believe he needs to remain off the tournament scene for a while so we can protect the honest players while that player has time to rethink his views on how magic works. So basically... If you're really, if the thing that causes you to be DQ'd is a mistake, you're probably not going to be suspended. If it's something that you intend to do, you're trying to break the rules, and damn it, we just caught you, you're probably going to end up suspended. That's, that's basically what that means. So, how do we make decisions, Chris? 
to determine which action, if any, should be taken and the length of the suspension, if applicable, we have a suspension guide, which is reviewed periodically to handle new situations we may discover. The guide is based upon the following idea. Penalties in tournaments are based on the tournament REL, but investigations are based on a player's intent to cheat. And note that the guide is not a public document and will never be published, which is probably a good thing. Right, though it's kind of a shame because I would love to see that document. Though it's one of those things that once you publish it, people will find a way to angle shoot and game it. So exactly. that's probably a good reason for it to remain unpublished. You know, there is a way for you to see this document. <laughs> Get on the investigations committee. <laughs> Okay, well, and is that one of those things where I need to, like, assassinate one of the seven judges sitting on the committee in order to take his place? Is that how that works? It's like the Sith Lords ascending? I guess so. I mean, <laughs> you could try DQing a bunch of people legitimately, and then they would be like, hey, maybe you should be on this committee. Okay. Well, cheaters beware. You're about to get... <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> right. This is this is possibly the most mysterious group in all of the Magic Judges program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they are sort of a cabal, but they're also a very, very important piece of the DCI, I think. Um, in fact, they, they sort of list their philosophy here. Actually, Chris, did you want to keep reading there? Sure. So the, basically, the philosophy just talks about when what they do with suspension. So if a player did not know what he did was very bad, he cannot receive a suspension. If a player knew he was about to do something bad, but he did it anyway, he might be suspended. But if a player comes to an event prepared to cheat and gets caught, the suspension will be very long, as it should be. So then they also go into what the possible actions they, are, they, they can take. They also go into what the possible actions they can take at the conclusion of their investigations uh, are. So, for instance, you know, we've already gone through the process. We've decided what their intent was. We've decided what the infraction was. After all this, we need to come to an action at the end of this. And what are those actions? Well, they've got three choices. They can either take no action, which they would do if they believe that the, the disqualification was enough of a punishment, enough of an education for the player. They could issue a warning letter, which would they would do if they want to stress that the player's behavior was very inappropriate and that if it were to happen again, there would be an automatic suspension. Or they could just flat out suspend the player because the player committed the infraction knowingly, he intended to break the rules, and is a detriment to the tournament scene. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And they say after that that context matters, so they, they have aggravating and mitigating circumstances. So, you know, don't... I think that there are still players who would take this document, probably this email or the, this the stuff that we're talking about here, and be like, "Oh well, I can just say that you know I didn't know it was bad, so then I can't get suspended." Well, if we think you're lying about that, <laughs> then all sorts of bad things happen too. <laughs> so um, there's there's plenty of you know that that would probably be an aggravating circumstance or an example of an aggravating circumstance, um, certainly. Um, so, yeah, there are, there are aggravating and mitigating circumstances. Um, also, it's, it's interesting, they say at the end here, I'll just read this last bit. Last but not least, if the disqualification was the result of a very close call, the player may not be suspended. 
Uh, we know that the judge sometimes has to make a tough decisions and sometimes has some and sometimes has some doubts. Um, so we don't want that judge to feel responsible for a suspension when the disqualification was not clear cut. So I think that's a very interesting way to approach it too. I mean, yeah, I, I've had d- DQs where, like, it's clear that a rule was broken, but it was it was hard for me to tell, just based on my investigation on site, whether you know they did it intentionally or they did it by accident, but maybe noticed later and didn't bring attention to it, or you know, there's a whole gamut, but. A serious mistake was made in a game, and based on my investigation on site, like I felt that I had to DQ the player, whether I felt like he was a super cheater or just kind of a you know cheat of opportunity, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so that like that that section right there is good to see that right. you know unless the the disqualif- you know the head judge who disqualifies the person is like yeah this guy was just totally cheating easy to catch that most likely a player is not going to get suspended okay well that's I, we can they also list the timing stuff in there but that's probably not as interesting to our to our listeners here so we'll probably ignore that bit um oh but there's one little little well, well they've refi- they've refined this mm-hmm. and i think they even announced this last year when when Kevin, when they were doing the quote-unquote sphere updates, and Kevin did the sphere update on investigations, uh, it says in total it takes 45 days from the end of the month until a player knows the result of the investigation. I mean, back in the day, we, we might not have found out for many, many months, you know, two, three, four months. Right. And players would often get antsy, like, am I suspended or not? Like, I... I need to know if I should buy a flight for you know Grand Prix or Pro Tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and now now with this forty five days, that that is important to know. I guess that's important. Yeah, that's the max time. So now there's a set time time frame. Absolutely. All right. It's mail time. Um, well, I don't we think have... I'm needed here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's actually try answering a few questions, and maybe you can maybe you can help us clarify some things for some of our listeners. How does that sound, Ricky? And if you have rules questions for us, um, uh, it's kind of yeah, embarrassing. The, the email, <laughs> right? I Here's the email. One, of, one, one hour in. That... Do it. All right. So Douglas asks us to define everything. That's the first question. Progenitus has protection from emblems, right? That's a thing, isn't it? I think we have to define everything. Hopefully, this isn't too dumb of a question. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. All right, Progenitus. So I have <laughs> Venser's emblem. I cast a spell. I want to exile Progenitus. Can I? I'm going to say yeah. No, because the source of the ability is a thing, and therefore Progenitus has protection from it. Absolutely right. Um, in fact, protection from everything exists in the rules. Um, it's rule 702.15i. Um, at least as of the, the answering of this question, I may have changed since the updates from Innistrad, but it's uh, one of the rules on protection. 
Um, so yes, and, and it does actually say that protection from everything is a variant of the protection ability. A permanent with protection from everything has protection from each object, regardless of that object's characteristics. Such permanents can't be targeted by spells or abilities, enchanted, equipped, fortified, blah, 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 blah. Basically, they can't have stuff done to them, according, they, they, that would normally be protected by any kind of protection. So, it's yes. Uh, 702.14i now. Aha. Whatever. Whoa. <clears throat> Some fast, okay. comprehensive rules work there. Um, let's see. Dan wants to know. Dan says he is from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dan wants to know, um, basically, at a competitive rules enforcement level or higher event, is there a penalty for making a deck that does not explicitly win, or rather, a deck designed to draw? For example, um, the Cage Sun debacle you mentioned a few shows ago that would intentionally, basically, you activate an ability that creates an infinite loop and therefore draws the game. Um, or Immortal Coil and Platinum Angel with no cards in your graveyard. Again, creates an infinite loop, draws the game. If that's the objective of my deck, is that okay? Well, if you want to be cynical about it, a lot of the decks that people build aren't designed to win very well. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> That's right. I think they're called judges, actually. You can even play a deck with 60 islands. Although Dan's question also gets, it actually reminds me of something we talked about in our previous episode about um, Caged Sun and whether or not Caged Sun was a mana ability and whether or not its ability would use the stack. Um, and I actually got some clarification from the head honcho himself, Matt Tabak, at Pro Tour Philadelphia, where I, I sat him down in a corner and just talked to him. Actually, I just interrupted him and Eli talking. They were just sort of geeking out about rule stuff. So I just sort of inserted myself into their discussion and said, hey, I have a question for you. Um, this whole thing with Cage Sun, um, is it always a mana ability? Because it kind of looked like that's what you were saying in the rules forums when we were talking about it. But, you know, it seems like it might not be sometimes. And he said, basically, that we were wrong. That... Cage Sun has a mana ability. So if Cage Sun turns into a land and taps um, for mana, that that activation of its own mana ability will be a mana ability. Um, and that it has a mana ability. So the first resolution of its own mana ability will be a mana ability. But then the rest of those will actually use the stack. The rest of those pieces of that loop We'll use the stack because they're not mana abilities, because they're not triggering from the activation or the resolution of another mana ability. Does that make sense? So you could respond to them by, with an arbitrarily large Blue Sun Zenith, for example? Sure, absolutely. You would actually get priority, you're passing priority back and forth to, to get that, to, to, to actually have each subsequent activation or trigger, rather, uh, resolve. So it, it is a mana ability most of the time, but if it turns into a land and taps, is some of its future abilities may not be mana abilities. Okay. So yay, yay corner case. Exactly. Okay, and we're done. <laughs> Never <laughs> again will this show mention Caged Sun. Okay, uh, we have a rules question here from Brendan. Brendan says, let's see, Brendan is in Maryland. Um, he says, Phantasmal Image is copying a spell skite. The opponent casts a spell with a target, say uh, Lightning Bolt, 
and I pay blue mana to redirect it. So, does the phantasmal image, which is copying the spellskite, get sacrificed or not? And then what happens to the original spell? That's perfectly legal. You can activate the ability. The lightning bolt will then target the, the spellskite illusion version, which then, goes, which then goes to the graveyard, and when lightning bolt tries to resolve, it's counted for illegal target. So this one comes from uh, Douglas from Galveston in Texas. Player A owns and controls Kark's Thumb and a Brahms Bombshell and a chance encounter with nine counters on it. So let's go through what those cards are. Kark's Thumb is, if you would flip a coin, instead flip two and ignore one. There's Bronze Bombshell, which is a creature. Uh, the main thing you need to know about it in this scenario is that if someone other than its controller controls it, uh, there's a triggered ability that says, sacrifice me, deal seven damage to the person who sacrificed me. Okay, um, And then also there's a chance encounter. Chance encounter says, whenever you win a coin flip, put a counter on this at the beginning of your upkeep. If there are 10 counters, you win. Okay. So that's those three cards. So what happened is player A has all those and last turn he cast Pact of the Titan. However, his opponent was a jerk and cast Armageddon. So he has no way to pay for his pact. His singular remaining opponent is at low enough life to die to Bronze Bombshell if the ability on Bronze Bombshell resolves. So if he somehow gets Bronze Bombshell, he, 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 will, he will take enough damage to be killed. Player B owns and controls a Risky Move. So Risky Move says, at the beginning of the upkeep, uh, at the beginning of... Oh dear, now I have to risky move. Actually, Riskypedia here can answer a risky what does risky move do? Uh at the beginning of each player's upkeep, that player gains control of risky move. And this is a red enchantment. The, the right? enchantment. And there's a second uh, and then there's right? a second trigger. When you gain control of risky move from another player, choose a creature you control and an opponent flip a coin if you lose the flip that opponent gains control of that creature okay so far so good douglas asks us walk me how through player a loses or wins or luck sacks into a win he doesn't deserve the game in question has literally been left on the table and will end shortly after they hear your answer (laughs) why wait why does why does the Krark's thumb matter? Or is that just there for the heck of it? Well, the Krark's thumb matters because there's a choice there where the, the player who's actually flipping the coins, maybe they'll want to win or maybe they'll want to lose the flip. And maybe they can choose based upon the outcome of two coins as opposed to one where they can't ignore either outcome. They're just stuck with whatever that outcome is. Flip a coin if you lose... Instead, flip two coins and ignore one. Okay. So basically, the thumb there is so that he can sort of choose whether he wins or loses. But that's so. Let's go through this. Um, so all the stuff got left on a table for like two days before we got to answering his question. Um, but we did get back to Douglas. So rather than ask Chris to just sort all this out, I think I'm just going to read my answer if that's okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, 
So, when we get to player A's upkeep, all sorts of triggers go on the stack. Player A's triggers go on the stack first, followed by players B, player B's, because this is active player, non-active player order. So, at the top of the stack, we have B's risky move trigger that says player A gains control of risky move. Below that, we have player A's Pact of the Titan trigger saying that player A loses the game. That's all that's on the stack at the beginning of the upkeep. So let's say we pass priority without shenanigans. What happens then is that player A gains control of Risky Move, and Risky Move's second ability will trigger. So now the stack looks like this, with A's Risky Move, which is it's now player A's Risky Move, trigger on the top of the stack, uh, where he says, I'm going to flip a coin if I lose... Player B gains control of Bronze Bombshell. That's that's the only creature he's got, so that's what we're going to do. Um, and below that on the stack is the Pact of the Titan trigger that says Player A loses the game. So, we resolve Risky Move's second trigger, and instead of flipping one coin, Player A flips two and ignores one. So if Player A wins both of his flips, he keeps the Bronze Bombshell, um, and he's also won a coin flip, so Chance Encounter is going to trigger, but... That trigger is going to resolve, but the beginning of the upkeep is well past now, so Chance Encounter really doesn't matter. Chance Encounter's second trigger won't do anything until A's next turn, um, so that's not really going to matter at all because the game is definitely going to end no. this turn. So, if A wins both flips, he loses because the pack trigger is going to resolve because he's not going to give the Bronze Bombshell to anybody. If he loses either or both of the flips, then player B gets control of the bombshell. It'll trigger, its trigger resolves, and player B will lose the game with the Pact of the Titan trigger still on the stack. So, A wants to lose at least one of the flips, or he will lose the game. (laughs) There were some red herrings in there. (laughs) Yes, yes there were. Do you ever get the feeling that sometimes the listeners sit down and specifically create situations? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I also know that if they, they know where to come if there's any question with that, and that is that they should send their emails to judgecast at gmail.com. That's J-U-D-G-E-C-A-S-T, judgecast at gmail.com. If they don't know how to spell judge, I, I don't know <laughs> we want them emailing us. If they don't know how to spell judge, then they definitely need our help because they're probably not able to read good magic cards either. Okay, so I think those are all the questions that we have that are that we're going to go through on the show today. Um, there are a couple other pieces there where where we got some emails, great emails from listeners uh, who say they've been playing Magic for a long time, they've listened to the show, and they want to become a judge, and they want to help us get in touch with the people that would help them become a judge. Um, some interesting cases here. We had one guy who's apparently um, in the Air Force. Um, and he is going to ship out to Japan uh, in a couple months here, and he wants to figure out, well, should I try certifying with somebody locally in my local community here, or should I wait till I get to Japan? I'm not sure if I'm going to have somebody in Japan that will be able to certify me, a level two out there. So you know, he wanted to go through that whole, whole question, and we sort of helped him out, um, referring him to some resources that would help him. Um, we've got um, also a couple people that were – um, you know, definitely interested in in getting certified or were recently certified. I guess we're, that that sort of completes the circle of our show today. Next um, time, leave some of the easier questions in. 
Oh, because these questions, like, it's hard to answer a question when you can't visualize what's going on, like this crazy risky move thing with multiple coins flipping. You know, that's yeah. not that's not really a good rules question. That's well, more sure of just is. a walking through the situation. Well, it is, and, but at the same time, it does cover like things like active player, non-active player order for multiple yeah. things triggering going on the stack at the same time. Like we we didn't even get to the the werewolves. Oh, <sighs> thank you again for taking the time to listen to us. From all of us here at JudgeCast, this is Sean Kenanese. I keep it fair. This is Ricky Hayashi. I keep it banter. And this is Chris Lansdale. I keep it in a box under my bed. I don't really know. Want to know <laughs> what it is? Yeah, that's that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs>